Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people, with news, views and expert interviews. Hi, I'm Steve Randall and welcome to Constructive Voices with an episode that raises important questions. How safe are the world's iconic buildings and how do we ensure that they live on for generations? The House of Parliament is an enormous building. It's 1.2 million square feet. If we are not careful, the United Kingdom is going to have its Notre Dame moment. That Parliament is going to burn to the ground. Our guests are Ian Paisley Jr., a British politician, and Rowan Moore, architecture critic of The Observer newspaper, and they'll share the jaw-dropping extent of restoration work needed at London's historic Palace of Westminster, the Houses of Parliament. Working with historic buildings is something that Peter Finn, Pete the Builder, has first-hand experience of and he'll share his insights too. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. So Pete, hi, how are you doing? Hey Steve, how's things? Yeah, all good, thank you. My goodness, have we got an interesting topic today. Yeah, well, we have a fascinating topic and some fascinating guests. We, we, we've, we're spoiled uh, on, on, on this episode. So basically, we're going to be discussing historical buildings. Um, I suppose the, the guests that we have in today are uh, UK-based, and, and they're going to be discussing the most iconic government building in the UK. But this is is a topic that is global. It's like, you know, every country and every nation have their historical buildings and they have their iconic places where people go, tourists go. And, you know, a lot of them have, uh, you know, a government buildings, which are, which are live and active, but they, while they may look very beautiful on the outside and take a beautiful photograph on the inside and the fabric of these buildings sometimes are in really, really bad condition. It's, it's a, it's a huge, issue or huge challenge, I suppose, for governments, authorities and owners of these buildings because uh, a lot of the buildings are live buildings, they're a tourist attraction, they're iconic um, and while they absolutely need TLC and to be looked after, they are also live buildings and you have that really difficult moment of do we shut down and do this absolutely necessary work and the logistics involved. So it's a really, really interesting uh, subject, you know. So, Pete, our, our two guests today, Ian Paisley Jr., who's a member of parliament in the UK, uh, and also Rowan Moore. He's the architecture critic of the Observer newspaper. He was named Critic of the Year at the UK Press Awards in 2014. And he's written this article recently um, referring to the Houses of Parliament, the Palace of Westminster, that iconic building, as potentially being Britain's Notre Dame. Now, we remember that horrible situation, that, that shocking footage that we saw of the cathedral in Paris burning. And he's saying, if we're not careful, there could be a very similar situation in London and I guess repeated around the world at the historic buildings we're talking about. Yeah, without doubt. So it's a fairly uh, shocking statement to, to, to make because as soon as you uh, you hear that, you just picture exactly what you just said, the flames you know, coming out from the Notre Dame building. And then if you put those flames onto your own historic building that you you and your nation love, it's a kind of a shocking scene. It is a real one. And again, when we hear from the two guys, and I can tell you a couple of stories later on as well, I, I, like, you know, there's no doubt about it. There is huge fire risk within these buildings. Um, and a lot of it has come from the changes in technology. Electricity, as we know, has evolved a lot over the years. You may have wiring in these buildings that is extremely old 
And a lot of the time what happens is wires just got put on top of more wires. It's very difficult as well. Maybe contractors change. It's very difficult for another contractor to come in to literally a spaghetti junction of wiring and be expected to uh, to make it safe. So what they usually do then is, is put in new wiring. So it's a huge challenge, but challenges need to be uh, overcome because who wants to see another Notre Dame situation happen in any historical building in any country across the world? Well, let's hear from our two guests. Henry MacDonald has been speaking to Rowan Moore, who's the architecture critic for The Observer, and also MP Ian Paisley Jr. It's Ian Paisley. I'm a member of Parliament for North Antrim, the most beautiful constituency of all 650 constituencies. I was first elected to Westminster in 2010, uh, for the previous 13 years, I've been a member of the Northern Ireland Assembly, and, and now for these 12 years, I'm a member of the UK Parliament. So elected politics, well, I also did the forum, so I've been elected now for 25, 26 years. So, so you've been around Westminster a, a very long time, and it is a special place to be in, isn't it, as you're working well, in Well, they say the average lifespan of an MP, elected MP, is actually eight years, so I'm um, more than 50% over that. It is a fabulous place. Look, if you're interested in history, I know you're interested in history, Henry, and I obviously love history. And I mean, the, the place just oozes a thousand years of history. And it's not just British history or English history, it's world history. I, I walk over those stones going into Westminster Hall and realise that at one point Henry VIII played tennis on those stones, um, that um, King Charles I was found guilty of high treason and taken out and executed. After the English Civil War, it was that was a room was a courtroom. It was used for banquets. It was uh, uh, William the Conqueror's son walked over those stones. I mean, just if, if walls and floors could talk, what would they not tell us? Eh? Wow, wow, can imagine. But some of those walls and floors are groaning at the minute, aren't they? They're groaning in pain. The building's in a bit of a part of state. If we are not careful, the United Kingdom is going to have its Notre Dame moment. That parliament is going to burn to the ground. So you've really three buildings. You've Westminster Hall, which is a thousand years old, built by uh, William the Conqueror's son. You then have the uh, little um, chapel behind it, or mini cathedral, which was, of course, St. Stephen's. And then off that, you have the new building, which was built in the 1860s, which is the building which everyone recognises with a clock tower at one side and a magnificent memorial to Victoria at the far side, the Victoria Tower, this Gothic building that stretches along the banks of the Thames. And it's it's that building, the older building, that actually is in dire need of major renovation work. And I was on the renovation committee. I was appointed as uh, one of the minor party members of that committee some years ago. And uh, it became very, very clear to me that if we do not take immediate and urgent action, the building will have a catastrophic event on it, which will uh, either burn it down like Notre Dame, or it will have something else, which means that we have to evacuate it. So I think as custodians of uh, this building, we have a moral responsibility and a duty to preserve that building, fix it and make it 21st century ready. And we can do that. It would take some time. It would take some money. But given the history of that place, it's absolutely essential that it is done. Otherwise, we are failing um, the public and failing the future generations. Well, we'll come back to the the costs in a moment, but can you give me some practical, concrete examples of how it's in such a part of state. Would you believe it that there's been something like 16 fires in the building 
in the last 12 years. Um, 16 fires that are caused by electrical faults, mainly in the basement. So if you go into the basement of Parliament, um, you can track along the, the walls. It's probably just uh, less than six feet in height, the basement. So you have to hunch yourself over and, and walk through it. Um, but it goes the full length of the Palace of Westminster. And uh, there's massive electrical cables. Um, there's a sewage system. And it's all in the walls, exposed on the walls. So it's not as if it's properly put in. Just the, the basement became the tracking system for all of this. There is set upon cable, set upon cable. Most of the people don't know what the cables are for. If they wanted to fix something, they just put a brand new set of cables in on top of an old set and didn't touch the old set. So you have this electrical spaghetti mess, um, which everyone is afraid to touch. Um, there's fires caused in that, so you have to have a crew of four men walk that building constantly, 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, three, six, five days a year, and they spot fires, fire hazards, and put them out. Um, and we're working in that building. We have a sewage system under there, which someone said to me when I was going through it several years ago, you know, the poos of William Gladstone is probably still working their way through this sewage system that is so long and convoluted. Uh, sorry to be so descriptive. Uh, and, and the actual sewage system is so ancient, so it's constantly breaking down. So from time to time, there are elaborate smells in the Palace of Westminster, which do not emanate from the Thames, which everyone thought they did, but actually emanate at times from what's happening in the basement of that building. There's also uh, a number of uh, ventilated shafts in the building, which instead of being allowed to remain as cool air-drying shafts, have been filled with wires and cabling and satellite material. And they've been put down shafts that are now got potential asbestos issues within them. So that's just so the you, so you could be breathing in asbestos and you might not even know it. I, I, I doubt if we're breathing it in, but I, I do suspect that if we started to do work on it, we would disturb it. And therefore, to do some temporary work in there or minor works in there, it would have to be done under completely isolated circumstances and therefore would require an evacuation of the building. But that's just the basement. If you work up then each level, so whenever um, Mr. Pugin, um, who was doing the interior design and uh, the other uh, designer, Barry, of the actual main building, he, he wanted a particular type of sandstone. And the way he cut the sandstone to give it that golden shimmery look, it was hung uh, the, the actual wrong way round. So it's permit. So it's permit, obviously, and because it's hung the wrong way around, it means that it glitters in a particular way. So it looks gold in the building, but it means that it's, it succumbs more to weather conditions. And uh, that stone, therefore, has allowed um, the uh, problems to do with uh, rain permeation of the building, water permeation, drainage permeation problems. Uh, so all those stones would really need to be, not, not, not definitely not replaced, but we'd need to be ensured that they're waterproofed again and treated. And there is, as you see from time to time, scaffolding all over the building where they're temporarily patching some of that stonework, cleaning the stonework, and also making sure that it is waterproof. But you can only do little bits at a time. And a proper refurbishment of that stonework uh, would allow for it to be done and done completely and properly. We also then have issues um, along the building with all of the glass windows. Every single window in that building 
beautifully lead-lined windows and with a handmade, um, in some instances, cut glass um, and uh, uh, coloured glass. Uh, those windows, a lot of them don't close properly. Therefore, there's weather permeation as well into the building. They all need to be fixed. And every single one of them was specifically designed by the designer to be individual and unique. So they're, they're magnificent and they're magnificent operations. There's little um, winding wheels at most of the windows to allow them to come up and down, but most of them have been broken over the years or augmented with new blinds, and that doesn't work. And so all of that system needs to be properly fixed. And then, of course, you come to the roof of the building, which isn't in too bad a state of repair considering, but it does need to be properly topped, the building. Then we work inside to the second and third floors. Uh, and the floors are made of massive slate tiles. Uh, they're about six foot by four foot, the actual slate tiles, and then the carpet is put over it. Those tiles, a lot of them are broken. They need to be repaired and, and, and some replaced. Um, the wood that holds them up needs to be strengthened. Uh, and, and the building just needs to be then modernised in terms of allowing new electronics um, to be put into it. Do you know that the worst place to send an email in the United Kingdom is probably from inside the United Kingdom's Parliament. And so there needs to be a proper system put in. Instead of being this kind of BITSA system, there needs to be a whole modernisation of the system and make the building 21st century proof and allow it to actually function properly. And sometimes with upgrades in, in, the, in the tech system, but again, it, it's, it's a patchwork quilt. It all needs to therefore be properly streamlined. And the only way to do it, in my opinion, is um, to recognise that if we want to preserve this building and make it fit for another thousand years, what we need to do is move out for a very short period of time, put a massive team in there, fix that building, refurbish it and uh, renovate it and bring it back into use. And from the public point of view, all they'll see is the same gleaming historical building. But these issues that we've talked about will at last be fixed and fixed properly. I believe you're not alone in the building. You've got some four-legged, furry, sometimes tailed friends fl- floating about as well. Well, they say that politics is full of rats, but we have we have lots of four-legged rats running along the building. So look, we we're on the Thames. You know, the, the water obviously attracts um, rodents. Uh, we have our own sewage system; it attracts uh, rodents. And from time to time, you certainly see the rats scampering along the terrace beautiful terrace or effectively the smoking room of parliament given that you have to smoke outside you can't smoke inside so we have them outside but from time to time they do come into the building i remember one night sitting in a debate and uh our my, my dear friend kate Hoey was sitting behind me and next thing i heard her scream <laughs> i turned around and there was this massive four-legged friend scampering over the the green leather benches. <laughs> and, uh, the House of Commons, isn't it, for our global oh, listeners? That's the, yes, the, the green benches, benches which, was, yeah. which was absolutely amazing. Uh, and so, so you do, you, I mean, and, and it's so frequent from time to time you're in committee rooms or you're in maybe one of the dining rooms and a little rat will run out, say hello and dash back in under the uh, woodwork. So uh, that's probably a problem that we're always going to have, given the uh, type of building it is and where it is located. But um, the fact that it needs to be properly repaired, it probably just adds to it. And it says we peel back some of the layers of um, the patchwork quilt 
that has been laid upon this magnificent building will probably uncover a number of very uh, fertile nests which will need to be um, uh, removed and relocated or eradicated. Well, relocating uh, the politicians, the MPs and the peers, uh, what's your guess that uh, how long would it take? I mean, how, how long would they have to be out there or somewhere else vacating the, well, the Palace of Westminster? Well, well I, I sat on, on, on this committee and we, we discussed this and we actually, in our first time that we brought it to Parliament, we got it through because we reckoned we could, with a bonus system um, to the um, contractors, that we would um, probably could do it in five years, maybe six years. And the suggestion was that if we could nail it down to that time frame, it means that you could have a parliament elected and that parliament, say, say they run on average for four years, that parliament could have its first year in the existing building, then move to another location for the next three years. Um, the next parliament, when it is elected, would still be in that temporary facility but for the last year of its service of that parliament would be back into the new building. So no one would ever have the situation of being elected but never sitting in the historic building. Now, I should point out historically, Henry, that that building, of course, was never to be there. In, in 1830, after the Great Reform Act, whenever the parliament was meeting in St. Stephen's Chapel, the um, suggestion was made that they could move to a building on the Mall called Buckingham House. Today it's called Buckingham Palace. And parliament was originally to be in Buckingham Palace, and that was going to be the new parliament. But the Victorians, being um, Victorian, they decided to have a national competition, which Mr Barry from Liverpool, the wonderful architect, won. And he designed this building to be built behind and on the behind St Stephen's Chapel, but in front of the uh, Thames River, on the banks of the Thames. And that um, building won the competition, uh, and, and that's why the building is where it is. So the notion of Parliament being in a different place is not some modern notion. It's something which has always been toyed around. And a lot of the things which we take today for granted of uh, Black Rod walking from the House of Lords over to the House of Commons, having the door slammed face, these are all symbols from a thousand years of history. They didn't actually occur in that particular manner, but they've been turned into symbols which the Victorians dreamt up. And, and you know, it's it's a, a magnificent um, piece of political theatre, and that's the way it's been designed. But there's no reason why we couldn't find a temporary location for about, and I think we should absolutely timeline it and say this is no more than six years. That's as much as it has to be. Do you think the majority of their fellow lawmakers are tending towards your view that we have a temporary relocation or do they want to stay put? Well, that's a really good question. My colleagues, whenever this was brought to Parliament for a vote the first time when I was on the committee, and I'm no longer on the R&R committee as it's called, um, we actually, against the grain, won the vote. And we won the vote to um, remove ourselves from the building. I think we were, this was to happen around about 2021, 22, and the building work would then commence. And obviously there'd be an election around about 23, 24. So that was the schedule we were on. But there was a, a fight back. And the fight back was organised by those who lost the vote. And in Parliament, nothing is simple. Even if you win a vote, you can still lose. And they came up with these extravagant arguments. The first one was the conspiracy theory argument, which is, quote, they will not let us back in once we move. 
And, and I, I tried to explore this position of who is the they? Oh, the authorities won't let us back in. But I reminded colleagues that we are the authorities. There are 650 of us. We decide where we meet. No one else. And so the they that they were talking about were ourselves. Uh, and so the conspiracy theory, I think, can be debunked. What we've got to do is to make sure that we, the parliament, are in charge of this process and we drive it and we make sure that it actually happens. The other issue, which, of course, um, exercised a lot of people's uh, minds, uh, was that if we were to leave the building, it could take an awful lot longer. And I think that this is a genuine concern, take an awful lot longer than the time stipulated period. But I think what we should have done in the preceding years was to build up a series of hubs where a number of pieces of work could be done in advance of uh, bringing them then to Parliament and then connecting those issues, those repairs into the building. We could have not only hubbed some of the work in advance, but we could have made sure that a, a, a lot more research was done in terms of the actual work that needed to be done so as we could speed it up and then incentivize the builders incentivize the restore work. It would also open up a huge opportunity for stonemasonry, for apprenticeships in, in that skill, for glassmakers and apprenticeships and lead workers, skills which are dying. We could have used it as a national project to renew the skill set of peoples all across the United Kingdom. And of course, we would insist that every part of the United Kingdom, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and England, played a part in contributing to the work, so this could not be done by contractors from outside. It would have to be done by British people, um, showing the skill set that they have, and actually make it a monument to that wonderful skill and ability that's within Britain. So th- they were some of the things which we put up, and I think that's what attracted people to supporting it. But the the big issue, and you touched on it earlier on, is of course the costs. So we're currently going through. A series of costings, which, I mean, this will cost billions of pounds. Uh, I mean, in the cost of living crisis that we're going through, it's just not feasible. But I would remind people that every year we spend multiples of millions on patchworking the building. So, for example, I think something like 40 or 50 million was spent on the clock tower recently. Um, Tens of millions of pounds will be spent. That's Big Ben, isn't it? That's Big Ben. That's now Elizabeth Tower, named after her marriage. Elizabeth Tower, yeah. So uh, we, we will have tens of millions of pounds spent over the next couple of the, the current month while Parliament is off for the summer, and that will be patchwork. And, and whilst people say, well, look, that's enough, just, just keep patching it, that is fine until we have the inevitable Notre Dame moment and we wake up one evening and the place is on fire and it's destroyed and the historical woodwork, the historical artwork, the historical... Um, wallpapers and um, hangings and chairs, chairs which Sir Edward Carson would have sat on, chairs that, uh, tables that um, Winston Churchill would have dined at, where Palmer, uh, Palmerston would have walked, where Parnell would have sat and plotted. All those bits of uh, architecture destroyed because we decided that as a nation it wasn't worth us doing this right. And I think we have a duty to actually do it right and to find a way of making sure that the costs can be covered and we could have a sinking fund uh, designed to do that and designed to cover it, like the National Lottery Project, uh, and use that to ensure that 
the National Parliament, which is a national treasure, is allowed to uh, continue in a, in a modern format. You've alluded to us already, but I suppose if if it, if it was a kind of a gigantic renovation project, if you move out all the lawmakers, the MPs and the Lords, uh, you're going to, it's just going to be a massive project for builders and subcontractors in Britain. It's going to be a boost to the building industry, isn't it? It's going to be absolutely significant to the expertise. It'll become a showcase of excellence for um, craftsmen because it, it, it just won't require your average brick eh, to do some work. This will require proper stonemasonry, proper skilled artisans um, doing work on, on a building like this, which is, has not been done for over 100 years. And that will create apprenticeships, will create a whole new skill set that then can be taken worldwide. And it's a springboard for, for that sort of thing. And, and I just think we're, we're missing a huge opportunity by not planning to do that during this decade. And we should, I think, uh, reconvene and try to get this done during the decade because I, I fear now that we're going to have this patchwork moment. Now, one of the issues is where do these parliamentarians go yeah. whilst we're doing this? And th- th- what, what about a, Birmingham? A, 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 I believe it's nice these days. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think they actually have to go that far. The The Westminster estate is massive. It just doesn't consist of uh, the, the Palace of Westminster. It goes halfway up Whitehall um, into the old um, uh, health uh, Department of Health building. And the, the talk was that we would actually have moved and um, built a temporary chamber in that building, which is right beside Westminster and could have continued to function as a parliament. There is an issue of where would members of the House of Lords go would, of course, be a great opportunity to reform the House of Lords and reduce it from nearly 900 down to a more manageable size. But setting that to the side, which is hugely controversial, I think the Lords do pose a, a slightly different problem as to where we would put them. Would they go to the Queen Elizabeth II Conference Centre or would we try and find them somewhere else? And there's, there's issues with that. And I think we have to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, finding a place to relocate the, the House of Commons is one thing. Finding somewhere to relocate the House of Lords does make it a very, very tricky exercise. But there's buildings right the way down uh, over Lambeth um, uh, at, at Victoria, which uh, could could be utilised. There's spaces there. So the, the, there are opportunities in and around central London, which we could still use. Or, as some people said, let's move it to the regions. Let's have one year of it, say, in uh, another part of England, a year of it in maybe uh, Scotland, a year of it in Wales, a year of it in Northern Ireland. I, I don't know how realistic that is. But I think there are opportunities for us to think outside the box and to find a solution to this. Is the building in terms of the general tourist footfall in London? You see throngs of people every day when you're in London outside it, taking photographs, selfies. Is it value for money, do you think, in terms of an historical symbol, a, a big, huge representation of what Britain is about? Well, if I were to ask the question, how many people do you think works in the building or should I put it this way? How many people have passes that permit them to enter the building and work in it? And it's in excess of 17,000 passes. So the building already accommodates almost 20,000 people. It then has visitors on a daily basis who enter the building of something, I think, uh, between seven and 10,000 visitors every single day. That's nonstop, round the clock. So there's visitors to that building every single day. Outside the building, of course, is hugely attractive to tourists and to the, the photographers. 
Uh, so it is a huge tourist attraction in its own right, but it's a living, working, functioning parliament, the mother of parliaments, for goodness sake. And that's why it is so interesting and why we would want to get back. And of course, it's free uh, to, to, to enter the building. So it's not as if it's a, a tourism mecca that you have to go and pay to enter. It's free and uh, it is definitely worth seeing and to educate our Young people, there's a wonderful schools project which takes place every year. I meet school groups probably every couple of weeks from my own constituency from across the UK who visit um, Parliament um, every week and uh, learn about democracy and the democratic process. I think that uh, we, we have to capitalise that and build upon that. So it, it is a building which is well used by the public. And if, big if, you had to relocate out of it temporarily. And if, you know, that was maybe your last term as a parliamentarian, would you be prepared to sacrifice that to be somewhere else in Whitehall, perhaps, or even across the Thames, in order for this well, well, group building to be to be refurbished extensively? Well, well, but what I would say is that this should not be about the parliamentarians. It would be very selfish to say, oh, for someone to say, oh, for an MP to say, oh, this is going to be the, possibly the last time I'm here, um, therefore I must have this. You know, we, we, we look after this building for future generations and then we pass it on. We can't have a situation where we allow our personal desires to take over what is in the best interest of that building for future generations. And so if, if, if MPs are having that as their trick, you know, I think they're wrong, and I've, I've said that there is a way of doing it that, to make sure that on the average space of time where, where a parliament lasts about four years, you could have a situation where as you enter for your first of the four years, you're in the old building, and obviously the election would take place and those MPs would either stay or some would move on. Um, but the new MPs who then would get elected in year four of the repairs would then by their second year of the new parliament uh, of their new parliament be in the new building. So it would mean that uh, parliamentarians would, for each generation who are elected and for each parliament elected, be eventually in the, uh, the the repaired building. So I don't think anyone actually loses, and we, we have addressed that particular issue. But that, of course, depends on them being able to do the work and do it promptly and efficiently and for bigger problems not to highlight. But all, all it says, just, just think of the morning... We wake up and there's been the Notre Dame moment, Henry, and people then turn around and say, well, why didn't you take responsibility and fix this thing? Why didn't you avoid this from happening? You know, the, the alarm bells are ringing. 16 fires in the last dozen years. Surely someone recognises and colleagues recognise we now are behind the clock in terms of acting on this. That's Ian Paisley, Jr. MP, talking to Henry MacDonald on Constructive Voices. More on that story in just a moment. Coming up, Pete the Builder talks about his work on an historic building in Ireland. But first, Henry's second guest, architecture critic at the Observer newspaper, Rowan Moore. The House of Parliament is an enormous building. It's 1.2 million square feet, which is bigger than the tallest tower at Canary Wharf in terms of square feet. It is quite an old building mid-19th century building. It has a basement that runs the full length of the building, which was originally part of a kind of ventilation design. Uh, The architect of the Houses of Parliament, Charles Barry, created this system of sort of vertical ducts and then this great big basement and air was meant to flow around it to 
cool the place down and get rid of, of waste air. It never worked brilliantly in that respect, uh, but what it became a very convenient space for putting in any kind of pipes and wires that was needed for electricity, central heating, air conditioning, CCTV, the internet, all the new technologies that have arisen in the last 150 years or more. The result of that is this absolutely extraordinary kind of like something out of the movie Brazil, this sort of vast undercroft of pipes and wires and gaffer tape and hazard signs, and which has never been overhauled, which has equipment that has passed its sell-by date or its use-by date, I should say. People don't entirely know which wire connects with what. No one is able to say with complete confidence that it will not, not catch fire one day, in which case the this Victorian system of ducts and voids between the floors would be rather susceptible to encouraging the spread of fire around the building. Now, they have put a sprinkler system in, which helps. And I am assured that the risk to human life is not too great. Uh, it has Obviously, it has to be passed. The relevant authorities have to approve it. Otherwise, it would not be allowed to continue as a place of work. Uh, however, no one is really saying with any confidence that the whole building would not suffer a, a very significant and destructive fire. And in your article, um, I mean, you point out last year there were fires, weren't there? Yeah, there have, been a number of, there have been a number of fires over the last few years, mostly pretty minor. But as we know from Grenfell Tower, which started with a piece of electrical equipment, or indeed the Great Fire of London or the Great Fire of Chicago, very big fires can start from very small sources. And, and Andrea Ledson, the Conservative MP and former leader of the House, has raised the fear that it could be like Britain's Notre Dame. It could be a sort of very famous historic building that suffers a catastrophic fire. And and this is not new news. People have been saying this for decades, really. People have been pointing out with sort of increasing levels of urgency that this, this risk exists. Of course, it's very hard for anyone to say, you know, to put a percentage on the risk, how likely it is to happen. But it's definitely not an ideal situation at the moment, on top of which you have things like asbestos. Um, well, I find this incredible. When you, you wrote that in your article, I, I was gobsmacked. How, how much of an asbestos risk is there? Well, there is a lot of asbestos down there following as a result of post-war reconstruction because the, the building was damaged by bombing and asbestos was a commonly used building material in, in the decades after the war. Um, well, no one knows how extensive the asbestos is. The thing about asbestos is it usually doesn't do anyone any harm until it's disturbed, until you start, you know, cutting it or disturbing it in some way. But that, you know, that will be necessary, and it is sometimes necessary to do that in all, you know, as a part of repairs and maintenance and so on. And there was an asbestos leak, um, I think, last year with over 100 people affected by it, which means um, both building workers and people who work in the Palace of Westminster, which I believe means they will have to have health checks for the rest of their life to make sure you know they're not seriously affected by the asbestos. 
So the significance of the asbestos is also that it adds to the complication of doing anything about about uh, this this situation. And there's also been sewage leaks, uh, failures of the sewage system. Uh, Meg Hillier, who was one of the MPs I talked to, said in parts of the building there's a sort of permanently stinky smell, as she put it, as a result of poorly functioning sewage arrangements. Uh, and then very recently... There was a leak in the roof of the House of Commons chamber of water, which required it to be temporarily closed. The other thing I should say is, and this is not a new thing, is, is that the uh, access for people with impaired mobility is very, very poor because it's a building that's sort of inspired by monasteries and cathedrals and medieval town halls, which means it's got lots of beautiful staircases and changes of level and so on, which, of course, are not so great if you are in a wheelchair or have difficulty walking. That problem's been there since it was built, but with kind of modern standards of access, that is also something that needs to be put right. What can be done about it? Well, firstly, it is this world-famous monument, a very beautiful building, most people would agree, with a quite extraordinary amount of decorative detail, carving paintings, carved wood, special wallpaper, I mean, almost every detail is a kind of crafted one-off. And so therefore, any kind of repair and restoration has to respect all of that. And then if you compound the complexity of the service arrangements that I just described with the need to respect and restore the historic fabric, those have a multiplying effect on each other, which means that the cost for repairing the building is extraordinarily high and so what has actually happened is there's been a very very slow process going back certainly to early in in the last decade and really before that of very slowly inching towards a recognition that this work has to be done but because it's very politically sensitive because no politician wants to be the one who tells the public that a very large amount of taxpayers money has to be spent on MPs place of work there's really a lack of leadership of, of anyone saying, standing up and saying, you know, this has to be done and this money has to be spent. Can you quantify the sort oh, of right, figures okay. we're talking about? So um, the current estimates for the cost are in the range of $7 billion to $13 billion. Good God. These are still very, very approximate because there still needs to be a lot more work to be done of surveying and assessing the fabric and working out what actually has to be done. Um, but those are the current estimates, which is an inc- you know, a really enormous amount of money, given that the recently completed Elizabeth Line in London cost around $19 billion. Of course, the Elizabeth Line figure is in the past, and the House of Parliament figure is in the future, so inflation comes into this. But even so, for the restoration of a single historic building to be in the same ballpark as a massive piece of transport infrastructure with 200 million passengers a year is you know very hard to take on board and and to comprehend and of course you would hope that those figures will be extremely rigorously scrutinized but um at the moment there's no particular reason to think that it can be done for less than that the other very important factor is that the recommendation of the experts is that the MPs and the Lords 
move out of the building while construction works uh, take place, because obviously it's much easier to do that if they're not there. So there are various proposals for them to move to some temporary accommodation elsewhere. And the estimate for how long they will be out has risen from six years to, I think it could be as much as 20 years, but certainly between 10 and 20 years. And that is very traumatic for MPs because, you know, they're a very big attraction to them of being an MP in the first place is the opportunity to work in this incredible historic place where great politicians have been before them. So the idea of working to a sort of porter cabin version of the Palace of Westminster is not appealing. And there are other MPs and, and lords who say, well, you should care about the job, but you know, the job is what counts and not where you do it. And you know, you should accept wherever you have to end up. But that's undeniably a very big factor. So 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 this seven to thirteen billion figure emerged early this year, along with you know the latest estimates on how long MPs and lords will have to move out. And that proved unacceptable to certain politicians. And as a result of that, they they wound up part of the uh, structure that was supposed to deliver the whole project. So in 2018, it was agreed there would be a structure similar to the one that delivered the London Olympics, where you have a um, delivery agency and you also have a sponsor body that kind of acts as a client on the part of Parliament. And the sponsor body was meant to be a kind of arm's length organisation precisely so that it wouldn't get tangled up with internal politics of the Palace of Westminster. It was the sponsor body that delivered the bad news about the budget and the decant time. And then it was decided in February that the sponsor body should be wound up. This was decided by the uh, House of Commons Commission which is a sort of powerful committee that's got the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, on it. It's got the Leader of the House, um, currently Mark Spencer. It has various other MPs on it. But it's, it's not very accountable and public in what it does. But anyway, they had the power to announce the winding up of this agency, of the sponsor body. And there's a new proposal, which is that the work is taken more in-house and that there is essentially a parliamentary group that takes on the role of the sponsor body. Um, the trouble with that is twofold. One is just the loss of continuity from, you know, you, you set up a body to do, do a job, and then if you wind it up, you know, that creates problems of handover and continuity. It, it delays the process still more, and it also raises the risk of political interference that, the sponsor body was precisely created to to avoid. Um, so this doesn't really look like a very positive step. It's going to be kind of piecemeal reconstruction in little bits and bits a year. Well, so yeah. So Mark Spence, the leader of the house, told me that it's like he made the comparison of a young couple buying an old, sort of falling down historic house, and they don't have all the money to pay for the work immediately. So they do the work very gradually over years and decades when they have the money to do it. The only problem with that is that obviously the longer it takes to do the work, the greater the risk. You simply multiply the risk per year by the number of years it takes. And also all the work done on the project so far says the more slowly you do it, the more it costs. 
I mean, there's, there's another aspect to this, which is the House of, House of Parliament do have an in-house maintenance team. Possibly a good thing about this new arrangement could be that the sort of ongoing maintenance that happens anyway could be more meshed with the grand capital project. That's an advantage that was sort of presented to me, and I, I haven't really sort of looked at that in enough depth to know whether that's true or not, but one can see that is a potential advantage about the new arrangement. And how many workers um, will, it, will it kind of attract or need to do this? I mean, have they estimated this kind of workforce that will be employed to, to do this bit by bit kind of reconstruction? Ooh, there's a few issues there. I mean, one is that if you, if, if you have all these interruptions and loss of continuity and delays – then in terms of the kind of expert consultant and contractors who you need to deliver a project like this, they're less likely to hang around waiting for something to happen. So it becomes harder to keep those people on board. In terms of the people doing the actual construction work, I mean, one of the challenges is how do you actually find enough people with the relevant skills in stonework and encaustic tiles and all the other kinds of detail to actually do the work so the project would probably entail a pretty major training program to build up skills in in those areas that doesn't fall under the category of mismanagement that's that is just part of the challenge of doing the job basically i mean it sounds very much internally as much as part part of the exterior but internally as chaotic shambolic as British politics seems to be at the moment. It's kind of it's kind of almost like a a symbol of the kind of way. Well, it's, British not politics. Just, it's not just at the moment. There is an academic at the University of Sheffield, Alexandra Meekin, who's done a thesis on on this this, this whole renewal program. She points out that the sort of fundamental problem behind all of this is a kind of structural, not in terms of building construction, but in terms of organisational structure, which is that there is not really a clear hierarchy of decision-making within the Palace of Westminster for the care and maintenance and protection and upkeep of the building. So you know, there are various parliamentary committees, as the House of Lords, as the House of Commons, so there's just not the kind of management structure you would have in a well-run business for dealing with these kind of issues, on top of which, because it is a political place, decisions are very highly politicised. So Andrea Leadsom claimed to me politicians from other parties than the Conservatives were sort of deliberately unhelpful because they knew that that would make the government look bad if they if they sort of failed to deal with the problem i have no idea how much truth there is in that allegation those allegations but that's the kind of issue that arises when you have politicians trying to uh, make decisions about a, about a building and as i said before it's, it's an incredibly tough ask politically to go to your constituents and say this much money has to be spent on our place of work and, and the public reaction is always going to be this is MPs spending money on themselves, which is not actually entirely fair because the real issue here is, is the significance of the building as a historic building. So even if MPs were moved out of the building and never came back, the building would still have to be restored for heritage reasons. So that's really why it's so extraordinarily difficult, even though people have been pointing out these kind of problems for a very long time and the problems get worse. This is why it takes so long 
for anything to happen and why it's very stop-start procedure. And something that Dr. Meekin points out is that we have been here before, around 200 years ago or a bit longer than 200 years ago, MPs back then were saying that the old Palace of Westminster at that time was a fire risk and also had various other hazards associated with it. And um, in 1834, it did indeed burn down. The old Palace of Westminster was destroyed, which is why we have the building we have now, which was built as its replacement. You know, I can't say for certain this is going to happen. And, you know, maybe it's we can be reasonably optimistic that it probably won't happen, that the whole building will burn down. But that possibility cannot be uh, dismissed. You and know, if really... you were making a comparison with another parliamentary building, I mean, a good example would be the Bundestag, the way it was reconstructed. I mean, it's a yeah. kind of a blurring contrast, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, of course, the Bundestag was a ruin, destroyed, you know, very, very seriously damaged in the war. So, of course, that that gave more of a free hand to the replacement. Whereas with the Palace of Westminster, it, if it doesn't burn down, we have this intact building with, as I say, just a, a huge amount of of decorative detail. Most people would want that to stay. I mean, I did actually do a little piece in last Sunday's Observer where I asked the question whether absolutely every last bit of Victorian wallpaper has to be reconstructed, given that this is such a very big rock and such a very hard, hard place that we are stuck between. There are corridor after corridor of, and room after room and courtyard after courtyard of ornamental Victorian space that the public almost never get to see. So I was just gently raising the question, would it be a terrible thing if in some of these kind of backspaces of the building, they didn't go the whole uh, full restoration and did something simpler? That's pretty controversial in terms of heritage and how you're meant to treat a grade one listed building and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But you know, that that's possibly something they should look at. And the only alternative is simply to admit this is what it costs. This is how long MPs have to move out and just bite the bullet. The 7 to 13 billion figure is not certain. It's not based on comprehensive knowledge. And certainly it should be very robustly challenged. But it does seem quite possible that it's real. There was an earlier figure of 4 billion that was estimated in, I think, 2013 or thereabouts by KPMG. It seems likely we are talking about a lot of billions, come what may. I suppose whether it's 7 billion or 13 billion during a cost of living crisis, that would be very hard to sell to the public, won't it? Well, it is. It is really hard. It's politically almost impossible, but. If the work has to be done, it ultimately has to be done, and it's for the politicians to find a way to square it off politically. And maybe it is a question of, you know, setting out what gets what's paid per year, so it's not sort of one gigantic bill. I don't honestly know the answer to that. I'm just pointing out there's a very big problem here. And as you said at the start, and it was kind of a headline in in your big big investigation. Overall, mm. this could be. UK nations Notre Dame moment once. That's not. That's not. That is not excessively scaremongering to say that there is definitely a risk to the building fabric, quite a significant risk, 
and and no one really disputed that that I spoke to. Some people sort of disputed, you know, the degree of risk. No one said, no, it's fine. We don't have to worry about it. So, yeah, it's real. So I understand the predicament that politicians are in about the cost, where I'm more critical of at least some politicians. I mean, there are some politicians who behave very well and honourably in this, but what I find hard to take is, for one thing, the endless sort of tinkering with the the way it's delivered doesn't seem very helpful. Uh, I mean, just to disband the sponsor body because they didn't like what they were hearing doesn't seem very clever as opposed to, you know, grilling the sponsor body and really trying to get them to step up and answer questions. And the other is this thing about moving out. If an MP or if MPs and Lords have to move out for a long time, which will mean that some MPs might spend their entire parliamentary careers not yes, in the Palace no. of Westminster, then I'm sorry, but that's just too bad. You know, if 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 there's this huge, huge headache that is going to cost a lot of public money, whatever way you look at it, the MPs have to take some of the hit on that. Not having a kind of um, neo-Gothic masterpiece as your place of work, then that is just quite low on the list of priorities that we're talking about here. This is Constructive Voices. So, Pete, as we talked about before Henry was chatting to our two guests, I mean, it's such a big topic and I would say a very emotive topic as well, because as we've heard so many times on Constructive Voices, particularly when we were at Footprint Plus, you know, people talking about the the passion that they have for historic buildings, the, the fact that those buildings mean far more than bricks and mortar. You know, they they are the essence of cities and, and other locations. And to hear about the possibility of those iconic buildings burning down or just crumbling to dust, is it's, it's heartbreaking. It really is. It really is like uh, when you hear, you hear the statement, you know, London Bridge is falling down and, and the potential is that, you know, Westminster may be falling down as well. It's, it's a tough statement to hear, but it's, it's the truth. We may see small aspects of them or, or, you know, we'll see one, one area of the building that is iconic, but a lot of these buildings are huge, like they're absolutely massive. And therefore it takes a lot of management to, to make sure that everything runs smoothly on an ordinary daily basis. If you then throw in to do a complete refurbishment project in a conservation type project like that of the of the like you know the, the highest importance it it really does it really does create challenges and to do that type of work costs a lot more than doing your standard type of construction work and um, you know you've got to make sure you keep noise levels down you've got to keep you know your dust suppression has to be done properly and vibration you have to be very careful about not damaging and um, you can't just just suddenly plow in and start doing work uh, you know like you may be able to do another project so there's a lot of a lot of thought and a lot of um pre-planning has to go into the construction element but also even to have the, the space and the time available to to do this work you, you know uh in paisley jr there discussed about the fact that some and um, members of parliament, if if the work was to be carried out, may never get to actually be in parliament, uh, in the parliament building. But you know, he came up with a couple of solutions for that, which was good. But he he makes a very good point there that at some stage this work has to be done, and you know, people have to look beyond their own 
self um these buildings are, are, are have been there for generations after generations of generations of people and the current people that are using those buildings are but the keepers of the building for that period of time and then it will be passed on to the next generation so it's it's about making sure that the buildings are kept in excellent condition or good condition um in some cases to, to be able to last the test of time. There's sort of two sides to this. There's the people who work in the building, and obviously, you know, MPs are are part of that. There are a lot of other people involved in this as well. It's worth pointing out, by the way, that a couple of hundred MPs actually are based in Portcullis House, which is a, a more modern building and all the facilities that go with that. But that still leaves about 400 uh, who are not. So there's this side of it where people need a, a good and safe building to work in, but then there's the the heritage side of things. And you, you, I suppose you get into the whole topic of how it's funded. And I know they do tours at the Houses of Parliament, but maybe with some of these historic buildings, we need to look at how the long-term funding is going to look. I mean, is it is it going to be from public funds or is there going to be some sort of private money going in there? Is it going to be turned into a hotel? People will be shocked at those sort of ideas, but we're talking about huge sums of money. I, th- I think the the recent refurbishment of Big Ben, which is actually the bell inside the clock tower, the Queen Elizabeth clock tower at the Houses of Parliament, cost something like eighty million. That's just for one bit of it. Yeah, absolutely. The costs are phenomenal, and the the figures are in the billions. You know, these historic buildings, like none of none of these uh, buildings are going to be cheap. Are going to be a quick fix. You have to do you have to do things in in such a step by step process, and also a lot of the time when you are working on those buildings, you are going to stop the revenue within the building, which is a huge problem for uh, the keepers of these buildings because a lot of the time the only reason why they are a tourist attraction is to actually create a revenue to be able to run the building. So if you stop that revenue from coming in, obviously you know it 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 uh, tightens up on on the uh, the money that the the entity is going to have to to be able to put into the into the buildings you know so like we did work on on the book of kells in in, in trinity college and the book of kells is l- literally their number one uh, tourist attraction in ireland and it was shut down and uh, they had to remove the book and of course you can imagine the the, the cost involved in making sure there's a transport and and safely store a historic relic like that. It's it's it was like a, a lot of time and 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 cost went into doing that alone, simply just to remove the items from the area to be worked on. And then we went in and we put in a, a lot of fire suppression. Again, this was a reaction from Trinity College Dublin to making sure that there wouldn't be a, a Notre Dame moment in in Trinity College, and especially at the Book of Kells because it it it, it has such a historical value. So. Then we, myself and my company, went in and we did the we did the works. Um, they they obviously did some additional works as well. And the uh, the area that the the book is housed is called the the long room uh, in the old library in Trinity College. It's a phenomenal room. It's like literally something like out of Harry Potter, and it on a daily basis has a huge footfall of tourists through it. So there was a very short period of time where the whole building was shut down, and then we reopened the section um, so people could st- still come and visit. There was another book put up. It wasn't the Book of Kells and, like, you know, that was acknowledged and people weren't <laughs> weren't brought in to, to be shown a, um, a dummy book or anything like that. But there was a, a different book which which was probably uh, have has less historical value. But, again, like, even this is stuff that I'm, that I'm discussing, like, these, the step-by-step process of, of all of this takes huge planning and huge logistics. Um, and then, again, there was the loss of revenue for a period of time but now, 
the, the works are complete. The book is now fully back on exhibit in its new fully safe environment. They took the opportunity to do other works as well uh, while they while they had the building shut down as well. So it, it was a huge commitment, but the short-term loss of revenue and the short-term l- like lack of availability for people to see the book was worth the end result, which was now that the book is now safely housed in a, an environment that has a much lower risk, if any risk at all, of, of um, having a, 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 like a terrible disaster like what happened in Notre Dame. And another thing that happens as well, Steve, is sometimes funding becomes available and then maybe a life situation changes. Like we discussed earlier, you know, we, we have a situation at the moment where the cost of living is going so up so much. So there will be huge debates uh, about whether money should be spent on uh, the restoration of a, of a building instead of going in other directions. So it's huge, huge challenges, huge challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, wherever you're listening to Constructive Voices in the World, and we've talked about some iconic buildings, but we'd like to know about yours. So get in touch with us through the website, constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash or through social media. It'd be really interesting to find out, you know, what our listeners, you know, what the buildings are that they absolutely love, those iconic buildings in, in their part of the world. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. Steve. Fair play, Jay. I'm actually really looking forward to seeing what we actually get to, to, to that shout out there because, uh, like, every, every time you go on holidays um to any part of the world you know there's always those iconic buildings i love rome like i mean walking through rome is like you know it, it's it's probably the city that you can most get a throwback in your mind to to uh you know the the old ancient roman days because they've kept that feel to, to the to the whole city so yeah it'll be interesting to see what 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 different um buildings get mentioned there and it, when it comes to you know people loving their nation and and uh loving their 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 part of the world that they're from there's usually always a connection to uh, a building in some way and especially when you're in the construction industry you know you, you will automatically be drawn towards what you feel is is your country's best uh, building so it's it's a it's it's a really interesting topic and um it's certainly something that that is 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 going to be passed from our generation into the other generation as well because as as we've said there we are but keepers at the moment of of these buildings and you know, in in a hundred years' time, there will be different aspects to life that we don't even think could be possible at this moment in time. That will again uh, be introduced into the into the function of those buildings. So interesting times and interesting subject. Absolutely. Well, look, Pete, we'll talk about more interesting subjects on the next edition of Constructive Voices. Talk to you again soon. Cheers, Dave. Thank you very much. Chat soon. And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website where there's lots more information too. That's constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Mm